Good morning, church. Let us pray. Father God, please open our hearts to hear what you would have us learn this morning. Putting aside our fleshly thoughts and worldly ideas, and in this way to leave room for the Holy Spirit to teach us. Lord, if my words are not of you, change them in the hearts and minds of my brothers and sisters here. For you are the only source of wisdom worth the hearing. Bless us with what you would have us learn now as we go forth. Amen. Please be seated. You almost caught a break this morning. I woke up. You can hear the frog in my throat. I was was afraid I was going into laryngitis, but uh, we'll see if it works out. I've selected for the topic for my message this morning, the wisdom of God versus the wisdom of man. That seemed like a nice, easy topic. It seems safe. I mean, it's simple and straightforward. I'm sure we can all rattle off lines of scripture that speak about wisdom and the guidance is clear. Seek wisdom rather than foolishness, right? I can't screw that too bad. Well, we'll see. A quick search of, of the Bible online for the word wisdom, my version came up with 235 hits. The book of Proverbs alone mentions wisdom 54 times. So let me read them to you. Uh, no, wait a minute. Maybe not. No. Okay. All of you have your favorites, I'm sure. But uh, they all lead to the same conclusion. God is the source, and his ways are superior. Okay, you can take that one to the bank. Now, as I go along, I'm going to be jumping all over. I know it kind of violates the, the Calvary Chapel theme of one book, but you only have to put up with me for one day, so. If you try and turn to each of these, your, your fingers are going to go carpal tunnel, so uh, just take them for what they're worth. Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So often, uh, especially in the Old Testament, there are parallel statements. So uh, wisdom is being associated with understanding of God. It's a key theme. Proverbs 3.13, happy is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding. There's that duality again. I trust that we are all willing to accept these and many others, but just what is meant by that word wisdom? There you get controversy. I remember hearing a a report one time, it was on the radio actually, a little filler, many years ago, but a man graduated from a major university with his, his doctorate in philosophy. He immediately sued the university for breach of contract. In his suit, he stated that the admissions department had promised him that if he completed the requirements of the degree, he would gain wisdom. The judge immediately found in favor of the man, wouldn't even allow the university's lawyers to speak. He declared it a prima facie case in the law. I mean, it's just obvious on the face of it, as this man clearly was not wise. 
He gave him one dollar. <laughs> the lesson here is that foolishness often comes cloaked in the trappings of education and hides behind flowery speech that masquerades as wisdom. Degrees are nice, but they're not proof, and the lack of them means very little, too. Paul knew there was much more to wisdom than that. That's why he said in 1 Corinthians 2.5, And my speech and my preaching were not with per persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Yeah. Finding out what that wisdom of God is and the differences between that and what passes for wisdom in, in the secular world is really what I'm going to try and address here. People continually fall prey to those who can intimidate with their words and are dazzled by degrees and titles and worldly achievements. Now, many people with advanced degrees and so forth really are wise. That's great. But many are wise without them. At one time, frankly, be, be, before I came to faith in, in Jesus, I had aspirations of becoming a college professor. I pursued graduate study in the field of sociology. Well, to achieve that, I needed to get a doctorate. And one hurdle that all students faced back in that time, going for such a degree, was the need to study the works of one particular man, a man named Talcott Parsons. He was a Harvard professor. He, he was dead by the time I came along, but still, everybody had to study this character. Harvard professor, and his writings were required for that doctorate. The problem was that he was so difficult to understand. Frequently, he wrote single sentences that would run on for two or three pages. One sentence. Grammatically perfect and packed with obscure vocabulary. Reading Parsons was a study and a trial in itself. Some institutions actually offered required classes on how to read and interpret his works. It was a, considered a painful rite of passage. You simply had to endure if you were going to go this career route. Well, mercifully, God sent me down another path before I had to pass through that particular torture. But eventually, a few others who did go on and get the degree were so angry about it that after they were in the, in the field, they began to delve deeper into his writings. Now, Parsons was a linguist, and he, he was fluent in many languages and studied all over. And they found that his complex style of writing disguised the fact that much of what he had to say was actually plagiarized from others. And he hid it in this, this obscure writing. Many of those sources came from other languages, so these folks really worked to discredit him. Parsons was truly a master at English and all those languages, but he misused his abilities, and his star dimmed considerably after that. He's still read by some, but he remains for many a symbol of how we can be intimidated and even tricked by elaborate words and pompous presentations. Words. We all use words, but we 
so often use them carelessly, myself guilty as charged. And this can do harm to ourselves and many others in multiple ways. We can speak in ways that are insensitive to others, often without meaning to do so. But our motive is immaterial. It's the effect that matters. Words can still be very painful. Beware of subtle meanings to others that we never intend. The words we choose can also say some destructive things about ourselves. Some of those things may be fair and true. Others might be unfair. Using unnecessary, big, seemingly impressive words can really say that you're just trying to put on airs, intimidate others, or cover up for your own own lax Talcott Parsons. Incorrect grammar or word usage may label you as uneducated or just sloppy about just what you mean. That may or may not be fair, but you leave an impression. Ill-considered or misplaced humor inappropriate times, may show us to be frivolous or lacking in judgment. And the use of common street slang, intended to seem down-to-earth and hip, may simply come off as crude. Be insightful as to how you use words. The ability to communicate is a gift of God, and it must not be abused. Particularly we as Christians, Because whether you're actively witnessing or not, you're being watched and listened to. You're sending messages whether you mean it or not. Please remember, words are like bullets or arrows that are launched. Regardless of the intended target, we are responsible for where they go and what they eventually hit. So the bottom line is words matter. I would ask you, as Christians, do we use our speech to honor God or to elevate ourselves? Not every unfortunate thing we say necessarily has some hidden self-serving motive behind it. It can be quite innocent on our part, but still harmful. Here, something like wisdom is needed to come to the rescue. When you speak, especially when you are witnessing about Jesus. Keep in mind, it must always be about what the listener perceives you saying about the Lord. Your good intentions mean nothing. You're witnessing, speak with them, not just to them. And most important to me, my, my way of thinking, strive to help them understand not just hear words. A brother in the Lord I once knew was extremely well-versed in the Word. Oh, my, he had massive amounts of of Scripture uh, memorized and could pull out quotations spot on at a moment's notice. And he was always striving to witness to friends and relatives, many people that he met, all of which is very admirable. But his efforts typically bore little or no fruit. This is because he wielded scripture like a club. He would bury others in a torrent of scriptural quotations, always seeking to argue people into belief. I don't think he realized how intimidating he came off, but he did. 
the verses he chose, as I say, were always right to the point. But only he understood their significance. Realize that the gospel itself and all the scripture has power behind it. I emphasize the word, the power is behind it. They require an open heart to hear the Holy Spirit calling to them through those words. And it's our task to help achieve this through our testimony and our sincere care and love for the person we're witnessing to. My friend seemed to believe that he could intimidate their unbelief solely by his own command of the Bible. And the strength of his faith would compel them to accept what he was preaching. I asked him once in frustration which he would prefer, to win a debate with someone or have them come to a saving knowledge of Jesus. It's often that choice. I never got, got an answer from him, but hopefully he eventually learned that when reaching out to the lost, the word is a tool, not a weapon. It's a reason for encouragement, not condemnation. And both a warning and a means toward salvation. By plain speech and our own testimony, spoken and lived, we can help open hearts to the quickening of the Holy Spirit. For that alone is what saves. Simply stated, when speaking about the Lord, check your ego at the door. Let God work his miracles. In our enthusiasm, we can get carried away and think that somehow we're going to convince them. We are just a minor tool, a delivery mode for the word and through the word, the spirit. Although it's out of context, perhaps John the Baptist said it best in John 3.30. Referring to Jesus, he must increase, but I must decrease. A common pitfall we can slide into is the extensive use of what some of us call Christianese, especially when conversing with non-believers or new Christians. What makes obvious sense to us often comes off like double talk to others and just so much nonsense to them. This only adds to the real resistance in the world to the spreading of the good news. That was made clear in 1 Corinthians 1.18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Does that mean we're superior? No. We're gifted. Remember, we were once without the grace and guidance of the Holy Spirit as well. And we remain simply works in progress yet. But let's not make it worse for others. Make it seem so mysterious. Nor should we rely on shortcut thinking of the kind that hides behind catchphrases and terminology. Practitioners of Christianity don't mean to. 
each of those phrases or terms has a wealth of meaning behind it. But again, it's not our intent of what we say, it's the net result. Beware, too, of throwing out fragments of Scripture, as true as every one of them are, but assuming that everyone will see the truth in them or understand the limits or the context in which they come, as we do, it's not going to happen. Consider just a few examples. They're not even, even the best ones. They're just a few I grabbed in a hurry. Proverbs 22.6. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Who here doesn't know an exception to that? Now, it's planting a seed, and we know the seeds can take root or may not. But someone taking this out of context, and then they know the child of, of a devout believer that has gone his own way, and all you're doing is raising doubts in their minds about the truthfulness of Scripture. Romans 8.28 And we know that all things work to good work together for good to those who love God. Yet, a devout couple loses a child. Some other tragedy befalls someone. If you just throw this out and don't help them understand the context of God's love and mercy and plan, you're just throwing stumbling blocks out in front. First Timothy 6.10 For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves with many sorrows. The world has twisted some of these for secular purposes or even to discredit scripture. And sloppy reading of the word by believers leads to misunderstanding as well. One of the most abused, though, in my humble opinion, is Luke 6.38. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be put into your bosom. For with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. This has become the, the central theme of uh, the, what is called the prosperity gospel. It springs from the likes of this. It has reduced the faith of well-meaning believers from a relationship with the Creator and Redeemer God to a mere business transaction. As many of you know, my hobby is writing, with dubious results in the marketplace, I might add. That was for good reason. But I've been tempted to write something else. I. I never start with a title, but this time I will. My title will be Christianity for Fun and Profit. Well, I was tempted, but I decided not to. I, I resisted the temptation, mostly, mostly because writing parodies is a dangerous business. Since no matter how extreme and absurd you make it, some people take you seriously. But sadly, many people 
with this prosperity gospel business really took quotes like I just gave and try and build the theology out of it. What I've referred to as Christianese is just our version of what the world thinks of as jargon. These are shorthand terms or complex concepts that people use within their professions or other groups who share common knowledge and interests. They're great time savers. I mean, why explain or describe a complex concept to everyone who already understands? Sure, use the term. But step outside that group and suddenly these are potentially great barriers between speaker and audience. Even worse, these shortcuts can be seriously misinterpreted by others, especially when it comes to matters of faith and the nature of God. General use of enough these tech terms of the faith may make one seem wise in the ways of God, well-read and mature in the faith. But when we're trying to reach the lost or assist others in their work of sanctification, it isn't about us, but how we appear can have consequences. Remember, looking like you're wise in the ways of God and mature in the faith, that's just another form of pride. If that's your concern, you're misplaced, and you're using Wisdom of man, when the wisdom of God is in dire need. In my youth, I was a computer programmer. Yes, uh, they had computers when I was young. Not many, and most of them were the size of this room, but be that as it may. People here, I was a programmer. Oh, gee, can you help me with, with my... Uh, a laptop? And the, no, all, all the computers I knew, they're in museums now. You know, the corner nobody looks at. But I was a computer programmer, and, and so I was immersed in a sea of technical terms, acronyms and abbreviations. And one quickly came to be fluent in this language when you work in that environment. Later, I was a teacher of that subject, almost 20 years of it. It was my job to convey the underlying concepts about those infernal machines to my students. And I had to constantly suppress the use of these terms that I knew so well, or at least explain the jargon that kept coming to mind. I suggest to you, we all have this same responsibility when sharing our faith. You can come up with a better list than I can, but concepts we take for granted are not at all self-evident to others. Grace, you're born again. Sanctification, repentance, even faith. They all have a whole star and constellation of meanings for us, but either the world has polluted it or people just say, oh, yeah, right, that's that, that churchy stuff. You better be ready. You can introduce those terms and use them, but make sure they, they're understood, help people. It's true that we cannot cause someone to be saved by the strength of our words. 
nor even our best explanations can convince someone to accept the Lord as their Savior. But we can become serious stumbling blocks if we don't explain what we believe and why we believe it, doing so in clear, straightforward ways. Be sensitive to such as this, because to do so is a vital aspect of true wisdom. Curiously, the very word wisdom can be another one of those jargon terms. Or at least a word that needs a clearer explanation as to just what it means. This is especially true since the wisdom of the world is hardly the same as the wisdom of God, as I hope I'm making clear. Many of us use terms like knowledge, understanding, even intelligence interchangeably with wisdom. But are they really the same? Knowledge often is nothing more than having facts and figures easily at hand. Hmm. So is the winner of Jeopardy really wise? For that matter, is your computer wise? Because a Google search can retrieve facts and details faster than, and more broadly than any person. I don't think anybody would confuse the computer with wisdom. So knowledge of facts and figures, details and data, they're helpful, they're important, but that's not the whole answer. How about understanding? Ah, this is broader. This comes closer to wisdom since it implies being able to generalize to new situations. But it can be very narrow in scope. My auto mechanic has a great understanding of car engines but not so much in other areas. Wisdom implies a breadth. In times past, however, medical doctor in a small rural town or village was treated as the unquestioned source of wisdom on virtually every subject, mostly because he was the only educated person in the community. A truly wise physician would correct this impression with his neighbors, but it was likely the few did so. There's a lesson in that. Beware. The label of wisdom feeds the ego, and it can be addicting. Intelligence. This one is definitely not the equal of wisdom, as it is just a matter of potential. How many highly intelligent people fail to make good use of their gifts? squandering the, their potential. So what is wisdom? Well, turn to the trusty dictionary. Found a definition that says, recognition of what is true or right, coupled with good judgment as to action, discernment, or ins insight. Knowledge of what is true and right, an exercise of good judgment. Okay, that's okay, but I guess like so many things that the world leaves vague or poorly dealt with, we should turn to the Word of God. Luke 2, verse 4, speaks very simply but eloquently of how the child, Jesus, grew to maturity in his home in Nazareth. It says, 
And the child grew and became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Now, I'm sure that he went to rabbinical school and and studied under the rabbi and so forth. But there's no mention of that, even though he, he, he knows Scripture inside and out. We see that in the later Gospels. But strong in spirit and thus filled with wisdom and the grace of God. This is a pretty good formula for those seeking true godly wisdom. Be strong in the spirit. So how do you do this? That, that borders on that, that jargon again. How do you do this? I suggest to you it means being prayerfully obedient and eagerly subservient to God and open to the leading of the Holy Spirit. Say that again. Being prayerfully obedient and eagerly subservient to God and thus open to the leading of the Holy Spirit. Even when it goes against our feelings or initial fleshly thoughts. Doing this with an open heart will naturally cause us to think less highly of ourselves. That sounds like a good idea. And it is as it should be. And will keep us from relying on our own strength. Another one, my lifelong struggle to be sure. Finally, study the word listening and learning. Strong in the spirit then. Prayerfully obedient, eagerly subservient, Thinking less of ourselves, listening and learning. Our nature is to be dragged kicking and screaming into compliance with the will of God. We're like little children looking for the minimum to do to complete his chores or to simply to avoid some punishment. So many of the religions be it denominations in Christianity or other religions, what am I supposed to do to get by? story of the, the rich young man, what do I have to do to get into heaven? He was asking for the minimum. Don't we all do that? I don't know if any of you are military veterans, but you've, most everybody's heard, heard the, the bit about the drill sergeant saying, when I say jump, you say how high? Hmm. When you say when God says jump, jump as high as you can and pray is enough. Don't look for the minimum. Look for all that you can do, and you're rewarded for it. Now I tell you all this not from experience, and certainly not from any particular success, but as a statement of my goal, and I hope it's yours as well. working out our salvation in fear and trembling. I I don't have to worry that I'm I'm not saved, but to satisfy God that I've done my best, that is fearsome. So you need a plan. For this, let me diverge from the word a little bit and quote that great American philosopher, Yogi Berra. If you don't know where you're going, you're probably not going to get there. Wisdom comes in many forms. Yeah, yeah, I know. The answer is always the same from the pulpit. Read your Bible. Read your Bible. I do. Okay. 
But as I said a few moments ago, we must read the Bible listening for that small, still voice in the Spirit and learning what the Scripture has to teach us. It's not just words. It's more than memorizing Scripture, as important as that is. If all you do is memorize the words, you're just building up your supply of trite answers to real questions that people will ask that cry out for insight and answers. And they're the very things that we will be asked by those to whom we witness. Giving somebody a piece of jargon in response to a real heartfelt question is not doing a service to them at all. Perhaps it's the awareness that keeps so many Christians from speaking the truth. The awareness that, gee, I'm going to have to explain this? And so, fear of making a mistake, they shy away from witnessing to that neighbor or friend. They keep their light under a bushel. But we live in a dying world. And I happen to believe that when we're taken to glory, we're going to be able to look over the edge and see familiar faces sliding into the pit. It's not our responsibility to save them, but it is our responsibility to help the Lord speak to them. This past summer, a number of you joined me in a video course on studying the Bible. And we learned about a three-step process that bears mentioning now, because it goes beyond just learning the words. I won't put anybody on the spot, but I'll recite for you the, the three steps. When reading, there's the observation phase, literally reading it carefully, knowing what the words say, followed by interpretation. Consider what you read, seeking the context and the real meaning of those verses either in the context of the times or the context of verses before and after it. And then finally, application, putting that lesson to work in our lives. If you only do the first or the first two, that's nice, but the application is what grows the fruit. That makes that last part especially vital. Head knowledge that is never applied to the ultimate con- is the ultimate contradiction of wisdom. Head knowledge without application. That's worldly, not godly. All of this requires great tar- trust in God and truthfulness of his word. So, I refer you to Luke 21, 14 and 15. Therefore, settle it in your hearts not to meditate beforehand on what you will answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which all your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist. Shortly after arriving here at Calvary, I was blessed with the opportunity to take part in the prison ministry with my brother's Paul and Peter Lewis. We would pray before each session that the Holy Spirit would use us and speak through us to the men we would meet. Frequently, we would experience words 
in response to their questions coming out of our mouths that were beyond our normal expression. And always they were, these were direct to the need of the moment. Often I would walk away afterwards thinking, wow, that was pretty good. Where did that come from anyway? Then I would realize it was God at work answering our prayer. If you are really open to the Spirit and are one with what he wants, which is that none be lost, he will in time have utterances come from you that you didn't think would come there. Remember, we're not saving anybody. We're just the mouthpiece. We can suppress it. Please don't. The good news is that wisdom is available to anyone merely for the asking. James 1.5 If any of you lacks wisdom, uh, let him ask of God, who gives it to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Does that mean he's going to give each of you an advanced college degree? No, because that's not wisdom. He's going to give you the mind of God in parcels that we can manage to deliver to those that need to hear it. Long ago, everything in my past is long ago, long ago I was introduced to a saying that I've sought to retain ever since. The more you know, the more you discover that you don't know. If you don't discover this to be true, then that's a warning. You may be believing the world's praises and are satisfied with where you are. May it never be. I firmly believe that an early sign of true wisdom is one's willingness to utter with conviction the words, I don't know. The people that are so in love with the praises of men, when they don't know, they just start running their mouth. I worked with administrators back in the computer days. These, these people knew, as the saying goes, knew just enough about computers to get their face slapped. But they were in charge. And when we'd be in meetings and discussing uh, some technical decision as what should be in the curriculum, the faster they talked, the less they knew. And it was clear to everybody. No, I don't know. You might not be satisfied staying there. All right, I don't know, but I'm going to research and try and find out. But then you need one other ability. The ability to accept the faith of the truthfulness of the word. Unless and until you find out why. The skeptic says, I don't know, so I don't believe. The Christian says, I don't know, but I believe, and may God enlighten me further. That's the difference between worldly wisdom and godly wisdom. One of them, anyway. Know that with the admission that you don't know something should come a desire to find out the truth, all the while living in faith. Whether or not the Holy Spirit graces you with it, understanding matters not. He knows and eventually be shared with us. Here's a question to consider. 
Why does God promise us eternal life? He could have just promised us a thousand years of bliss and then quietly drift off. That still would be pretty good compared to the three score and ten we have on this earth. Why eternal life? I would suggest to you it's going to take that long to comprehend the glory of God. And if that doesn't motivate you, I don't know what will. First Corinthians 3.18 Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. A friend years ago had a, a t-shirt and big letters across the chest says, I'm a fool for Jesus. And on the back it said, whose fool are you? We're all fools. Might be a fool for Google or a fool for the mo- most recent fad or the, the fool for the world in as many guises. I'd much rather be a fool for Jesus. Hopefully you do too. 2 Corinthians 1.12 For our boasting is this, the testimony of our conscience that we conducted ourselves in the world in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and more abundantly toward you. Yeah, the references to wisdom are profound in all through the scripture. And it all contradicts what the world will tell us. There's no shortages of examples of foolishness of men in the Bible, but there are also examples of great wisdom as well. Rather than dwell on the wisdom of men, let's look at a few cases of wise men of God as shown to us in the Word. The first of these I'll mention is Solomon. He didn't start out as a particularly wise or even a well-prepared leader. But note what he did. We're told in 1 Kings 3, 5. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night. And God said, ask, what shall I give you? Well, Solomon responded through verses 7 and 9. After having praised his father and extolled his father's virtues, he then said, now, O Lord, my God, you have made your servant king instead of my father David. But I'm a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people, whom you have chosen, a great people too numerous to be numbered or counted. Therefore, give to your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? Now, we all know that God was so pleased with this response that Solomon didn't ask for a long life, great wealth or power over his enemies. He was so pleased that he gave Solomon all these things as well as great wisdom. This is simply the royal application of what Jesus told us in Matthew 6.33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added to you. Well, clearly the lesson here is that all true wisdom comes from God, not man. Unfortunately for Solomon, his story goes on to help make that point again, only he does it the hard way. 
Solomon's reputation for wisdom spread throughout the known world, as did his wealth and power. Unfortunately, he came to take these blessings for granted, and his pride grew, and his thankfulness to God shrank. In time, he permitted idol worship in his kingdom, and in the end, after his passing, the promised land of the Jews was split in two. This eventually led to the nation being carried away into bondage. 1 Kings 9 shows how clearly Solomon was warned of all this if he failed to honor the one true God, but history shows that he did not heed the Lord's, word, the Lord's warning. Now, so much for his wisdom, which was consumed by his pride. The wisdom of God can be transmuted. Our free will can pervert. We must stay in relationship with God, seeking his wisdom continually. It's easy for us to shake our heads and wonder how Solomon could be so foolish. But what of us? Despite the far greater revelation of God that's sitting right now in your lap in the Bible, do we not pursue personal pleasures, career, or merely hobbies or, or other diversions as competitors with the Lord for primacy in our lives? We read our Bibles and even study them and gain knowledge of the Word, but are we acting with godly wisdom in our daily walk? That's the question you should challenge yourself with every single day. A second example out of Scripture is that of Saul of Tarsus, better known to us as the Apostle Paul. Here was a man who was draped in the mantle of great wisdom by men. He was known as, as the Jew of Jews in his time. A powerful Pharisee with vast knowledge of the, of the Old Testament and the law of Moses. And with it, a passion for enforcement of the law that he studied so thoroughly. This made the followers of the way his sworn enemies, his academic prowess and the recognition of men that came with it generated a fierce pride and sense of self-righteousness, such that he even went searching for heretics all the way to Damascus. How many Christians, be they rank and file or leaders, have become so self-righteous in their, in their knowledge? As we know, Saul's worldly wisdom was brought low by a flash of blinding light and the direct revelation of Jesus while on the Damascus Road. We who have accepted Jesus as our Lord and Savior have also been called to that higher godly wisdom and the Holy Spirit resident within us to bring this about. As wondrous as that change within us is, we would do well to read carefully what appears in Acts chapter 9. Ananias was sent by God to minister to Paul, but Ananias was afraid given Saul's fierce reputation. But what did God say to all this? Acts 9, 15 through 16. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my sake. This isn't a free ride we're on, brothers and sisters. 
We've been purchased by a very high price on Calvary's hill. And Jesus told us in John 15, 19, Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Trying to make friends with the world is a fool's errand. We will be hated by the world, and so we get off lightly when we are just ignored or mocked for our beliefs. Many around the world are suffering far more. Next week, we're going to learn from a guest speaker how much so. I learned long ago, however, that you can tell a lot about a person by who despises you and how that person responds in turn. Remember always that God's love should be more than sufficient to make up for the slights of the unbelieving world now and the attacks yet to come. Now I found that it is fruitless to try and figure out how it is that God chose to save me from my sins and bring me to faith in his son. Clearly it is not due to any qualities or accomplishments of mine. All that I know is that he did choose the likes of you and me to fulfill his perfect plan. Perhaps 1 Corinthians one twenty seven has at least a partial answer. It says, But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that are mighty. Remember that next time you're starting to feel superior. Thus we have a task, or perhaps many tasks, to perform, and our evident inadequacy makes sense if you think about it. If God only chose the most brilliant minds to proclaim his wisdom, might we come to think too highly of the brilliance of human thought? And in so, so doing, steal the glory due to God? Come to think of it, the secular world already does precisely that. good part of our, our culture worships the scientist. But we know better. We just have to remember it. We all must recognize that although our salvation is a free unmerited gift of God, still, we are not a mere audience watching the Creator put on a show. By his design, we each have a role to play as we too must take up our cross daily. Although it may not always feel like it, this opportunity to be working as a part of God's plan is one of his greatest gifts to us. We are called to be willing sacrifices of what the world offers. And our old nature, though, still craves those things but we are to do so for the glory of God and the fulfillment of his plan. To do so, that, that is wise. Paul learned this and answered the call, and so must we. Before leaving this line of thought, however, let me share an insight that our brother Elkanah shared with some of us recently. Philippians 1.29 For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, 
not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. We've been granted a privilege, the opportunity to suffer for the cause of Christ. Yes, and this has been bolstered by what Jesus told us himself in Matthew 5, 11 through 12. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now look, let me be real here. I cannot speak for all of you, but I must trust that you understand. I didn't wake up this morning or any other morning hoping that that day I might be able to suffer for Jesus. Oh boy, I hope I get to suffer today. Any more than a soldier wakes up in the field and hopes he's going to come under enemy fire. Yet, like that soldier, we must be prepared and willing to bear up under suffering and know that the rewards and recognition for this in eternity are great indeed. Let's consider a third person in Scripture, Abraham. You may not have thought Abraham a great man of wisdom, but I want to make the case that he was. Despite his multiple failings and times of doubt, he was, he was a flawed man like all of us. Impatient for his promised son, he went his own way and sired Ishmael. And more than once he lied out of fear, portraying his wife Sarah as his sister. So where is the wisdom in this, you ask? His wisdom can be seen in his remarkable willingness to step out in faith. We all know of his heart-rending dilemma, sacrifice his beloved son Isaac or disobey God. Remember that at that time he was surrounded by cultures in which child sacrifice was widely practiced. This command would not have sounded as unthinkable to him as it does to us. Yet he wisely proceeded as God commanded. Far earlier, this pagan man in the distant land of Ur Mesopotamia, or possibly modern-day Iraq or southern Turkey. This pagan followed the command of God to move, uproot his family, his herds, and all he possessed, and go blindly to some unknown destination. Go, go out there. Where? I'll tell you. Keep going. He left his culture and all that he knew and became a stranger, wandering about in other men's in people's lands, that was a dangerous thing to do, even lethal in those times. Foolish, you say? Not if the Holy Spirit blessed him with the insight that here was a command from the one true God. And after all, why else would he follow the orders of a previously unknown deity? No doubt his neighbors and extended family thought him a fool, but consider the wisdom of 1 Corinthians 2.14, which says, but the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. Nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. This, to me, is evidence of great godly wisdom imparted to Abraham. So we see that although Abraham could be as foolish at times as other men, and to us to be sure, 
but through faith and fear of the Lord he gained the wisdom of God to obediently follow. And that led him to found a great people that would give rise to the Savior of us all. Let's reduce this to a simple statement. Obedience to God equals wisdom. Wrap that up and put it on a little note in your wallet. Our last example is the prophet Daniel. Perhaps I'm biased because of the shared name, but to me, here is an ideal example of a man unfailingly embracing the wisdom of God. Just a brief disclaimer here, though. Heaven and my wife know that any similarity between the prophet Daniel and myself ends with a name. Okay, But nevertheless, he's, he's one of my favorites. As you read through the book of Daniel, you can hardly fail to notice two consistent themes. Daniel's reliance on prayer before attempting to speak wisely and his consistent insistence that it was God, not he, that was the source of his dream interpretations, prophecies, and even his personal life choices. He never wavered from these principles, even when following them put him at lethal risk. Neither did his power and exalted status during the reigns of multiple kings ever go to his head. He knew the source of his blessings and he remained faithful to his God. By his example, then, we can see that the wisdom of God can be employed by men, but must never be claimed as their own. For in all things, not men, but God is to be glorified. That, to me, is the key to knowing if you're straying from the wisdom of God and lavishing on yourself the wisdom of men. In conclusion, let me make clear that there is nothing wrong with seeking out education. In fact, learning what we can of God's revelation about himself and the wonders of his creation bring honor to him and can inspire us to ever greater devotion. The problem arises when our quest for knowledge becomes a virtue unto itself. Acquiring great knowledge without continually humbling ourselves before God, the source of all wisdom, leads only to self-worship, to pride, and all nature of sin that follows from it. Taking this to the extreme, some adopt the foolish belief that human intellect makes the need for a God obsolete. Many in our time consider faith a mere remnant of an early primitive and superstitious forebearers. The contention that we need no God has grown to become a dominant view in the secular culture, which is a godless world that is driving humanity faster and faster towards a final crash landing. Ever since the construction of the Tower of Babel, men have tried to exalt themselves by their own accomplishments and have devoted themselves to the worship of creation rather than the creator. Not coincidentally, many who fall into this error harbor the desire to in some way control the nature that they cherish, thus taking on at least symbolically the role of God for themselves. Why not? After all, isn't that the quest to become equal of God that was the sin of Satan? And temporarily he rules this world. And it is he 
the prince of this world, who would steal the glory from the one true creator God. If we start falling in love with the secular and the worldly, even though we might try and make that on the side along with our faith in God, what a slap in the face. We must be on guard lest our quest to know of God and his handiworks tempts us to think too highly of ourselves. The praise of men is both hollow and fleeting and hardly a substitute for a proper relationship with God. In the final analysis, wisdom is not a matter of how much we know, but rather it is first and foremost about obedience and in the process learning from the source of all wisdom, Almighty God. So let us now solemnly resolve and commit ourselves to use our gifts to learn more about God while trusting in him for what we do not yet understand. Learn what we can of the wonders of his hand, true, to his glory, not to our own pride. This is right and proper, even as it equips us and motivates us to spread the gospel as Jesus charged us to do in the Great Commission. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you have equipped us with all that we need to learn of you and to appreciate just who you are. More than just our minds and our senses, you have blessed us with divine revelation in your holy word. The life and suffering of your Son who bore our own humanity and freed us from the slavery of sin. And now, in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, to teach and guide us. Forgive us, O God, for squandering precious time and the power of these gifts on trivial worldly pursuits. Change our focus so that we see you in every aspect of our daily lives and not just in the wonders of the world you've made. Imbue us with your wisdom, not the type that the world values. Grant us the wisdom which flows from faith in your holy word, obedience to your commands, and the humility to see that you alone are the source of all that is good and of eternal worth. Help us to learn and grow in the knowledge and wisdom of you, discovering still more ways to bring you glory and bear witness of you to a lost and dying world. Amen.